Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Did you ever wonder if we're doing some great research right here in the islands? Well, you know, we're lucky the Hawaii Pacific Health 2017 Summer Student Research Program scholars are here today, and we are going to hear about some of their fantastic studies that are happening right here locally. So just when you thought that all of the research that we read about comes from the mainland, nope. Today we're going to dispel that myth. We've got six different folks today are going to talk about their specific projects. Now, these are local students who have gone to high school here or coming back, and they're all in college planning on going into the field of medicine. So we want to encourage a lot of different people who hopefully want to come back and practice medicine here in the islands to help us with our doctor shortage. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to hear a little bit about some of these great projects as part of Hawaii Pacific Health's initiative to really grow some of the education locally. And hopefully we'll all be able to take advantage of their expertise when they come back here after doing some training and share all their knowledge with us. Now, to get us started, we're going to talk with our first student today, uh, Jackie Ho. Now, Jackie, where did you go to high school? Because that's the big question here in Hawaii. I learned that since I didn't go to high school here, that that's, that's what everyone's going to ask. And where are you in school now? Hi, Dr. Kozak. So I graduated from Punahou in 2014, and I'm an upcoming senior at Creighton University. Fantastic. Okay. And what are you studying? Um, I am a biochemistry major and a biology minor. So major and a minor. Now, why do you do both? Because as a pre-med student, we have a, a lot of required classes to take to go to medical school. So it's really easy for us to tack on a biology major, biology minor, and it just kind of comes with the sake of being a pre-med student. Sure. So you have to take all these classes right, anyway. Right. So you might as well get a minor right. in it because you're taking them all and Correct. hopefully going to go off to medical school. And do you know what kind of medicine you have any interest in at all or it's an open book? Well, I think what I'm learning now is that you really should have an open mind. Um, I have a lot of interest in being in the OR. My dad's an anesthesiologist, and I would love to be a surgeon, but from this summer, I think I've seen everything. I want to be a radiologist now. I want to be a neurologist. You know, we have an, a lot of things that we want to do, and I have no idea anymore. You know, it's so funny because I remember when I went through medical school, the rotation I liked the least was internal medicine, oh. and the residency I did was internal medicine. It was kind of ironic. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure why that all transpired like that. But, you know, I, I think I didn't like it because I was overwhelmed and I couldn't grasp it. And I felt like it would always be so much I didn't know. And that's mm -hmm. what attracted me to it is because I feel like there's always something new to learn in medicine. Now, Jackie, you're working with one of my colleagues and friends, Dr. Greg Maldini, and you're studying uh, cholecystitis. Does specialization matter? So right. first off, what is cholecystitis and how come I, I don't want to get that? How do I get it? <laughs> Well, uh, acute cholecystitis is when you have an infected gallbladder, and it usually happens when gallstones come and clog stuff up. So um, it can swell, it can be inflamed, and obviously if it bursts, it's a really big problem. So yeah, it needs to be hurts. taken out. Yeah, right. So if you get gallbladder symptoms, that would be that kind of funny pain in your Abdominal right upper pain, side, correct. right? And it would really hurt when you press around that area. There's certain people who are more likely to get gallstones. But if you have acute cholecystitis, you're studying a particular aspect of that. Does specialization matter? Now, right. what do you mean by specialization of the physician surgeon or of the condition? 
of the physician surgeon. So what what does it mean to be a specialist and what exactly are you working with with Dr. Maldini about this? So within surgery, obviously, you can be a general surgeon, but you can also specialize. So Dr. Maldini is a hepatobiliary surgeon, so he specializes with the liver. And he's wondering if um, the specialization of the surgeon affects the outcomes of the surgery. So if you've got a gallbladder problem right. and you get someone like Dr. Maldini who right. will roar in on his motorcycle at 3 a.m., I know this for a fact. <laughs> with his hair flowing. With his hair flowing, you got it, and I'll come in and I'll do your surgery. Excellent surgeon, does a fantastic job. So he would have expertise in hepatobiliary, which okay. is the liver and gallbladder, and someone who might be a general surgeon who doesn't have that expertise could also do the surgery. It's Correct. kind of a basic procedure, and a lot of surgeons know how to do it. So then... He's trying to figure out, does having a specialty in it make a difference? Well, does it? What I found out is that not necessarily. So we've done a retrospective chart review where we look at the surgeons and their outcomes of people who have had their gallbladders taken out because of this disease. And I think the main thing that I found is that the Straub doctors are awesome. I mean, I've looked at maybe 500 charts and only 20 or something people have had really major complications. So that's an awesome statistic. And it's not all just Dr. Maldini. So even those who don't have that specialty, this is a procedure that they could do. And the surgeons are excellent and most people do well. Right. Correct. Excellent to know, because if you need to have your gallbladder out, don't sit around and wait for that to get better. It's not one of those things you can just kind of wait it out. And happy to know that if I ever need my gallbladder out, whether or not it's roaring on a motorcycle (laughs) or it's one of our other fantastic surgeons, this is a procedure that anybody could do. All right. Thank you, Jackie Ho, for sharing that with us. And thanks to Dr. Greg Maldini for providing the opportunity to have students help take a look at this and making me feel better if I need my gallbladder out. Okay. Number two, we've got Tori Teramai here. And Tori, tell me, you're doing something that a lot of folks need to be considering, which is, you know, skin and soft tissue infections. So first, where did we'll, we'll do the classic, where did you go to high school, where are you in school now, and then we'll talk about your project. So I graduated from Iolani School in 2014, go Raiders, and um, I currently attend Creighton University, and I'm going to be a senior. Great. And your major is? Neuroscience. Neuroscience. Wow. These fancy majors making me feel <laughs> kind of sad that I wasn't a neuroscience major. All right. And so you're studying uh, antimicrobial selection in skin and soft tissue infections. So like what antibiotics people should use if they mm-hmm. get infections? Yep. Okay. And skin and soft tissue as opposed to like a respiratory infection or a sinus infection, you're talking stuff you might be able to see on the skin or something in the soft tissue areas. Yes, that is correct. So what should I do? Somebody comes in, they fell in the alawai. Don't fall in the alawai. It's really full of bacteria. But if they do, what antibiotics should I use? What what can I learn from this project that you're working on? And you're doing it with Cheryl uh, Okada. So, so what should I do? Well, basically, it depends on what is causing the infection. So we know that Some of the main causes of skin and soft tissue infections are methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus infections or methicillin-susceptible staphylococcus aureus. Sure, so that MRSA we hear about that you don't want to get that. Yeah, we've heard a lot about that Mm -hmm. in the past couple of decades. And then also group A streptococcus is another major cause. Yeah, so those are the three main causes, and uh, basically... When you come into 
the hospital, whether you're in the ER or admitted, um, they'll do like a wound culture. And they can look at the susceptibilities of these bugs to see what antibiotic will work best. And at Kapiolani, um, they were typically using clindamycin to treat these infections when there was a big rise in the MRSA. And then they started to see that uh, the MRSA infections have been decreasing, but clindamycin resistance has been increasing. So because of this, they decided to change the protocol to uh, clindamycin plus this other drug, cefazolin, in order to try and reduce the resistance to clindamycin. So it really just depends on um, what kind of bug is causing the infection and, um, yeah. So find out what the bug is. Yeah. And then if you can tailor the antibiotics to limit how many of the good bacteria they kill with the bad bacteria, mm-hmm. hopefully you can make sure that more bacteria don't become resistant. Yeah, and that's why it's best to use like a more narrow-spectrum antibiotic, if you can, to... Um, just to make sure we don't yeah. get more resistant bugs. You <laughs> yeah. mentioned it. We're starting to see more clindamycin resistance, uh-huh. and we have to be careful because bacteria are getting super smart. And if yes. the bacteria that are resistant to clinda and the bacteria that are resistant to all these other antibiotics all get together and have a party, we're all in a we're lot of trouble. trouble. <laughs> all right. So that sounds like a fantastic project. Lots of learning, particularly mm-hmm. for anybody who goes to see their doctor, gets a skin infection, wants to know what to do. It's, it's something that is great for us to have that data and to know. So thanks for working so hard on your project and for what you're doing this whole summer. And good luck in your career. Neuroscience, that's just, (laughs) that's mind-boggling, literally, because it's your brain. Thank you. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with our 2017 Hawaii Pacific Health Summer Student Research Scholars. When we come back, we're going to be talking about some other exciting projects happening right here in the islands and things that are going to change the way that even I practice medicine. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, Nohea Gallery, and Straub Medical Center. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we're talking to summer student research scholars about some great projects they're doing, doing some research right here in the islands. They're all working at hospitals affiliated with Hawaii Pacific Health, and we're learning a lot about things that I might change in my medical practice or things that will help relieve the minds of folks Mm -hmm. who might need emergency surgery. Is there a way to make sure you get the best surgeon in town? And there is, and we're learning that it doesn't matter if they're a specialist in that procedure or not. And so these are all great things that all of us practicing medicine can utilize, and particularly everybody out here in the islands who needs medical care can learn from. So next up, we have Jesse Wu. Now, Jesse, you're working on extubation in pediatrics. So this has to do with when when uh, kids are actually put on breathing machines and how do we know when to take them off. So first, we're going to start where you go to school, where you going now, what you're studying, and then you're going to pronounce the names of the folks you're working with because I can pronounce cholecystitis like the bomb. I can't pronounce these names. So first tell me where you went to school, Jesse. All right. I am also a Punahou graduate of the class of 2013, and I am currently or I just graduated from Creighton University um, with my BS in biology. 
Fantastic. Congratulations. Had a big graduation party, I hope. Spending your summer working hard, which is excellent. I admire that. Now, you're working with some folks here. I'm going to say Dr. Len and Dr. Tanaka. You can say the rest of their names. Um, It's actually Dr. Len Tanaka and Dr. Prashant Parohi. And that's why I did not (laughs) actually pronounce it, because I butchered it as I expected. Okay, so you're talking about kids. What, What are you doing with them? Yeah, so um, both Dr. Len Tanaka and Dr. Parohi, they're pediatric intensivists at the PICU at Kapiolani Medical Center. And we're looking at when to extubate or when to take out the tube for mechanical ventilation. So about 40% of all all of the kids that go into the PICU actually have to get a mechanical ventilator. So the question is, when do we take them off of it? And if you do it too early, then you have the risk of them failing extubation. You have to put the tube back in. And that's associated with uh, pneumonia, uh, damaging the trachea, and other symptoms. While if you take it out too late, then you have a higher cost, higher length of stay, and their muscles may become dependent on the ventilator. So we're looking at all these different factors to see when should we take out the uh, endotracheal tube. Yeah, I mean, if you're put on a breathing machine, and particularly if you're a kid, even if you're an adult, it's a scary thing to have a machine breathe for you. Often you have to be sedated so that you don't try and uh, breathe over the ventilator or cough or cause problems with getting that uh, assistive device that you need with the with the oxygen and everything going through the machine. So there's a perfect sweet spot where it's a great time to take someone off the ventilator. Don't let them get dependent on it and take it out too late or don't take it out too soon and cause difficulties. In what you are finding, is it easy to make that determination, or is that often a difficult decision for the intensive care doctors to make? Yeah, it's actually a pretty hard decision. Um, There's unfortunately about a 20% failure rate, and um, what Kapilani has tried to do is adopt a protocol from Iowa, actually, which helps them to determine um, whether or not they should extubate the patient or not. Um, However, the protocol is pretty specific, and the clinicians like to use their own judgment sometimes. So there's only about a 10% compliance. But um, from what we're seeing, um, I haven't done the data analysis yet, so I can't say with anything for certainty. But it seems the clinician judgment seems to be just as good as using the protocol. So perhaps it doesn't matter. Well, and it's hard because, you know, protocols are meant to help us to make great decisions in medicine. But there's individual variation in everybody in medicine, and not everybody acts the same as another person would, and there's a lot of different things we have to take into consideration. So that's a hard job. I think you're you're definitely in the middle of it, trying to figure out should we personalize that approach or should we follow standard guidelines, and maybe the best answer is a little bit of both. Happy to know we have such great intensive care unit doctors at Kapiolani. It's nice to know that we have that kind of expertise and that their ability to make this decision that really is a major life decision is right top notch with everybody else. So thanks for giving up your summer and working on this and uh, working really hard. Good luck. Are you going to be going to school next year? What's your plan? Yeah, so I'm still deciding. Um, I'm applying to a few labs on the mainland. So personally, I'm interested in genetics genetics research and precision medicine. Um, Of course, I'm open to any field within medicine, but I do really find that interesting, and I think it's the future of healthcare.
I would agree. I got to tell you, I did my 23andMe genetics a few months ago just because I thought it would be fun. And, you know, it was really kind of mind-blowing. I mean, just to find out not just the genetics but also the ethnicity, where you're from, all this kind of stuff. I agree. I think that genomics or the way that we're starting to test tumors for their genetic abnormalities is really actually the forefront of medicine and where we're going in the future. So thanks for being part of it right now in the present. All right. Maya Matsumoto, you are here doing some studying this summer. Tell me a little bit about where you went to school, what you're studying now, and then we're going to see about external measurements. We'll talk about this condition, pectus excavatum. That's that's a mouthful. But tell me first a little bit about you. Yeah, so um, I graduated from Punahou School in 2014, and I'm currently an upcoming senior at Claremont McKenna College. Wonderful. And what are you studying? I am getting a dual uh, degree in biology and psychology. Ooh, that's an interesting Mm -hmm. combination. Biology and psychology, because they really are intertwined in a lot of situations, and a lot we could learn from that. So you're working with Dr. Russell Wu, and there's this condition, pectus excavatum. It's this unusual appearance of the chest that some people are born with. And what exactly are you doing with that? Because it's something you can visually identify on someone. But what does that mean as far as what happens to them medically, and why would we need to measure it? So um, typically, uh, pectus excavatum is it's a depression in the chest, and it goes so, in instead yeah. of out. Okay. And in some severe cases, it can actually um, cause exercise intolerance and cardiopulmonary dysfunction. And most of all, it often, for adolescents at least, will cause psychological distress, as you can. Well, yeah, your chest looks funny. You know, you don't want people to make fun of you. And then there's like a divot going inside. And so, you know, I mean, there might be less space in there when you're trying to do exercise and stuff and take good deep breaths and things. So there's a lot of reasons why it could be medically concerning and also psychologically kind of affecting kids as they grow up. So are we measuring it to figure out what we can do about it? So, yeah, usually if it is a severe case, you would have um, surgery done, which is, and it's typically the NUS procedure. However, uh, typically, since it's only the severe cases, you would need to calculate a Haller index, which is calculated using a CT scan. However, CT scans have a lot of radiation, which we know can cause cancer, especially in children, since they're more susceptible to it and they're younger. So basically what my project is, is I'm comparing these Haller index from the CT scans to external measurements to see if there's some kind of correlation between those. So in the future, we could use external measurements to determine the severity rather than subjecting these children to radiation. And it's a great plan because that way they don't get the radiation exposure. We can do something that sounds old school but actually really isn't and do measurements and help to get them that answer. Fabulous. And thank you for the hard work on that because any kids who happen to have this condition are going to be happy that there are ways that they can have any severity diagnosed without having to go through a lot of tests because tests are scary. I mean, you know, if you haven't been through a CT scanner, that's not the easiest thing to do. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with summer student research scholars from Hawaii Pacific Health. And when we come back, we're going to hear about a couple more projects, great things going on right here in the islands. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. 
Mahalo to contributors Inter-Island Solar Supply, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We're talking with research scholars. These are college students who are recently graduated who want to go into medicine, are dedicating some of their time this summer, and they're doing a lot of great work trying to help us advance medical research and knowledge right here in Hawaii. So next up we have uh, Shani Ma. You are working on Carnary artery dilation and Kawasaki disease. That's a really specific thing. You're working with my buddy, Dr. Andres, uh, I can't say it, Bratsiak, no? Bratinchak. Bratinchak. Don't tell him. I know he's listening. <laughs> yes, I can't say your name. You're Dr. B to me, okay? <laughs> Just make my life a little easy. All right, so where'd you go to school? And tell me a little bit about you. I graduated from Mid-Pacific Institute in 2013, and I recently graduated from UC Davis with a BS in Neurobiology, Physiology, and Behavior. Okay, you just couldn't pick? (laughs) Neurobiology, Physiology, and Behavior. That's a huge, huge major. Good for you. So Kawasaki disease, what is it, and why do we worry about coronary arteries? Because this is something that might happen in kids. Yeah, so uh, Kawasaki disease, or abbreviated KD, mainly affects children from about a couple months to maybe about eight years old. It's very rare to have um, children have it outside of that range. And it presents mainly with fever for a couple of days. Um, And then you'll also have um, cervical lymphadenopathy. So lots of lymph nodes in your neck. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have like bilateral conjunctivitis. Uh, you might have a rash. There's certain diagnostic criteria. The problem with KD is that there's not a true diagnostic tool, so it's very hard to detect. Fortunately, in Hawaii, because it's more present in Asian populations, our physicians are, are more sensitive to it, so we are, uh, we are able to di- not diagnose it easier. So um, Dr. Bratenshock is really interested in seeing if there's a pattern in coronary artery dilation and whether or not there's um, a certain timing to detect them best. It's important because with when your coronary artery is dilated, it can lead to a clot, it can lead to an aneurysm, and this can lead to the patient bleeding out and then That's really death. serious, yeah. yeah. So Dr. B is studying KD. Yeah. I kind of like that, okay? <laughs> so if there's a way to predict mm-hmm. if there is this dilation so you could fix it. Exactly. Before it causes a serious problem. Exactly. That's the general plan because mm-hmm. if you don't notice it until later, you mentioned serious complications that can happen, aneurysms and even ruptures of things. Yeah. So if we can figure out a way to predict who might have this dilation, we could fix it before it causes trouble. Exactly. Excellent. So what are you going to do next year? Um, so far, I've been scribing in Vegas uh, for the past couple months. I actually recently moved from California after college. And I'm going to continue scribing, uh, maybe look into other research opportunities. So scribing, we'll you got to tell me what that is. Oh, so I work in the emergency room and I help the doctors chart to kind of increase efficiency in the emergency room. I want and to clone you. Yeah, it's So really basically, <laughs> you follow them around and you put in a bunch of documentation so the ER doc can focus on taking care of patients and not just, you know, typing and charting. And then you can do the typing and charting and learn a lot about medicine and exactly. what kinds of questions we ask and all that kind yeah. of stuff. It's been a great experience. Well, and I bet your handwriting's still good because mine's <laughs> horrible. I mean, I, you know, having to write everything down all these years, forget it. I can't <laughs> even read it. 
it's 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 really bad. So great, that's a great way to get your get your foot in medicine and know what's going on. We literally, have to scribe it, write it all down, yeah, or type it in. I think, yeah, yeah, we type now and it's pretty extensive, so it's really cool. I love it. Good. We need more of you. All right. Last but not least, we have Jamie Wong. Now, Jamie, you're working on a whole bunch of different things here. Antibiotic resistance patterns in pediatric staphylococcal aureus, acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, and septic arthritic infections. Can you imagine that I can't pronounce people's names, and yet that just rolls off my tongue? That's just really just sad for me. All right. Tell me a little bit about you, Jamie. Okay, um, I graduated from Hawaii Baptist Academy, and I also recently graduated from the University of Hawaii at Manoa with a BS degree in molecular and cell biology. Wonderful. Great. A lot of science. Well, you're all kind of science majors, Mm -hmm. learning all different sorts of things. Now, you know, you talk about molecular biology, and we're talking about, you know, antibiotic resistance in infections. So let's kind of break this down. We're looking at, now, you're working with Dr. Natasha Ching and Dr. Marion Mellish? Correct. I can even pronounce that better. (laughs) All right. I'm sorry, Dr. B. Okay. And what you're looking at is, are there resistance to antibiotics in kids with staph aureus infections that start in the bone and maybe go to the bloodstream? Um, sort of? Sort you of. tell me. Okay. Okay. So similar to Tori's project where we're looking at antibiotic susceptibilities, but we are specifically looking at staph, staphylococcal aureus infections and not just all infections. We're looking at invasive infections. And so these invasive infections include osteomyelitis, which is an infection in the bones. Yeah, don't get that. That's not good. (laughs) And bacteremia, which is an infection in the blood. Yeah, bacteria in the blood. Don't get that. That's not good. (laughs) Um, Another one is septic arthritis, and that is usually associated with osteomyelitis. So that's bacteria in the joints. So joints, bone or blood, Mm -hmm. don't get it. But if you do, what you're studying is the resistance pattern of the bacteria. Yes, that's correct. So um, recently we've seen a trend of MRSA going down, but an upwards trend of MSSA with clindamycin resistance going up. And so what we're looking at is these cases, osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, bacteremia, and also staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. And we're looking at the antibiotic susceptibilities to better... Kind of target antibiotics. Correct, correct. Because with these invasive um, infections, we have to use broader spectrum antibiotics. So that's usually vancomycin or clindamycin. And so when we're dealing with these really bad infections, mm -hmm. we've got to be super careful what medicines we give. Because if we give the wrong ones, the infection will spread. But if we give super strong ones that are too strong then there will come a day when the bacteria get super smart and they're resistant to those too. Is that what we're worried about? Yes, correct. And also with using these stronger antibiotics, such as vancomycin, which can lead to kidney damage, as well as clindamycin, which can cause C. diff, it's really important to, during empiric therapy, to pick a really good antibiotic that won't be resistant and won't cause harm, further harm. Sure, you talked about C. diff, and that's like <laughs> diarrhea gone wild. Yes. <laughs> you know, you just you don't want to get that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, when we overuse antibiotics, and, you know, I'm a guilty queen, sometimes we use them, even though we're not 100% certain that someone needs it, 
that results in side effects. And good bacteria get killed, bad bacteria get killed. But sometimes the bad guys learn how to sort of get around the antibiotic and become resistant. And that's something that some of your projects have really taken a close look at. And that's a really important thing for everybody to remember is, you know, just because you got the sniffles, don't go run to antibiotics because when you really need them, when you have this infection in your skin, infection in your bones, infection in your blood, infection in joints, you really want to make sure that you have the capacity and the ability to utilize those antibiotics and respond to them and not be resistant. So lots of really good stuff you guys are working on. Really appreciate you taking the time to share these projects with us. Best of luck in your future. Please go be great doctors and come back and help our community so that we can all do better in our techniques and how we treat patients, but also so that we can all get healthy. And when I'm old, as I feel like I'm getting quicker than I want to, you guys can all take great care of me. I'll remind you, remember... I was nice to you. I had you on my show. All right. I want to thank all of you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thanks for your projects. And there's a big presentation coming up. Good luck. I know you're going to do great. Our engineer tonight is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll hear more projects next week right here on The Body Show.